morning, church family. How are you guys doing this morning? Hey, y'all sounded pretty good, but I, I think eight o'clock might have had you there. Y'all believe that? No, not at all, right? You guys are doing good this morning. Hey, my name is Daniel Norris. I am one of the pastors here at New Beginnings, and I am excited to be here with you today as we worship together. Hey, I would be remiss if I didn't do this. So Friday, we had a special holiday in, in our, here in our country, and so here's what I want to do before we jump into the message this morning. If you are a veteran, if you served in any of our armed forces or you're currently active, would you please stand so that we can honor and celebrate you? Go ahead and stand up. Come on. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Yeah, let's let them hear it. Come on. We just want to say thank you to each and every one of you. We would not enjoy the freedoms that we do on a daily basis if it were not for great men and women like you. And so on behalf of our church, on behalf of our staff, we want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts and that we are forever grateful for your service. Y'all give him one more round of applause. So this morning we're in week two of a series that we started last week. Pastor Todd kicked us off in the book of Philippians in chapter four, and the series is called A Good, oh, y'all gotta wake up, eight o'clock did beat you on that one. It's called what? A Good Word. You ever heard something before, and you're like, oh man, that was good. In fact, last week when Pastor Todd was walking backstage, without even thinking about the name of the message, I just looked at him and gave him a fist bump. I said, man, that was a good word. He goes, I know it was, wasn't it? It's it's the name of the series. And so that's where we're at. That's where we're going to be today. Here's what I believe as we jump into Philippians chapter four, is I believe that the Lord has a good word for us today. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but um, the world we live in today is vastly different than the world I grew up in. So about, it's changed a lot over the last 35 to 40 years, 40 plus years. A little, I see you looking at me trying to hold me accountable over here. 40 plus years. And so I was thinking about that this last week and thinking about some of the things that have changed. And my kids love it when I do this, but I'll make statements like, hey, when I was a kid, any of y'all ever do that? Any kids ever hear that from your parents where you're like, hey, let me tell you something. When I was a kid, well, let me tell you guys something. When I was a kid, we didn't have these things. We didn't have these, uh, not phones, but computers glued to our hands 24-7 where we could access any information that we want just by the click of a button. We had, if we were lucky, we had a thing called a pager. Anybody remember a pager? You were a big baller if you had a, a pager, Right? You had a pager and a payphone if you were lucky and could find one. And you better have some what? Some quarters in your pocket so that you could take them out, put them in the payphone and use it. We were in uh, South America and Brazil of all places this past summer on a mission trip. And my 13-year-old was with me. And in a remote village in the Amazon, there was this big half blue circle that looked like a dome on a pole with a, an, a, an antenna on it, a power cord running to it. And we walked by and he said, Dad, what is that thing? And I said, dude, that's called a payphone. <laughs> it's a dinosaur. And I go, come on, let me show you something. I said, you have to put a quarter in it. And then look, you have to push these buttons that are numbers to actually dial somebody's phone number. And if you're real old school, you remember this. <laughs> the, the rotary phones, right? 
So we don't, we don't have those anymore. Uh, we just voice command everything. We tell it to call mom or call dad or call whoever you want to call. You don't have to remember any phone numbers, do you? You remember you used to have to have everybody's, everyone important in your life. You had to have a phone number memorized. I couldn't tell you three people's phone numbers right now. I've forgotten all of them, uh, except for just a few people in my life. Uh, so TV, when I was thinking about this, when I was a kid, we didn't have voice activated remote controls. We couldn't say, Alexa, I want to watch, you fill in the blank, whatever you want to watch. And it just finds that channel any time of day. And you could watch cartoons 24-7 to your heart's delight. Right? We didn't have any of that. We had a remote control, but her name was not Alexa. Guess what her name was? It was Daniel. And my dad would say, hey, boy, get up. Go change that channel. We didn't have 10,000 plus options. You know how many channels we had? Three. Some of y'all remember this. Three, maybe four if you're lucky and the rabbit ears are working the way that they're supposed to and you crinkle the foil a little bit better and you can maybe get that fourth signal to come through on a good day. But that's the world I grew up in. Now, the 21st century in the year 2022, we have more options. And how many of you do this? You still look at all of those streaming channels with each one of them having 10,000 plus options. And if you're like me, you scroll for 30 to 45 minutes. You start to fall asleep looking for all those for the show you want. Then you go, this is worthless. There's nothing on. How many of y'all hear that at your house? There's nothing to watch. I hear it all the time and I'm like, Lauren, if you only knew, like <laughs> when I was a kid, and she says the same thing to me, no, when I was a kid, we only had this many channels. And so the world is just vastly different. We live in a world with more technology, more information, and more entertainment than we've ever had in the existence of humanity. And yet... Guess what? Still not enough. Still not enough. Listen what historian Arthur Schlesinger, say that a few times, Arthur Schlesinger says about this. He says, as a culture, as a society, he says, we are marked by what he calls an inexhaustible discontent. Inexhaustible discontent. Our quest is always for better and more and what's next. Any of you relate to that? Some of you, some of you are like, man, you're, you're stepping on my toes right now. Uh, I, I know, this is tough. We want a, a better job with better pay and a better boss. We want better relationships and a better car and a better backhand in tennis or a longer drive in golf. We have a propensity to live endlessly for pursuing the next thing, the next weekend, the next vacation, the next purchase, or the next experience. We are never satisfied, never content, and envious of those who have what we have not attained or accumulated. Sound familiar? This is the world we live in. But can I just tell you for a moment, all laughing aside, this is not a, a, a new thing. This is not a 21st century thing. In fact, you can trace this all the way back to the very beginning. You can trace it back to the garden if you would like. Y'all remember that story? 
God created everything and everything was good. And then he placed Adam and Eve in the middle of this perfection called Eden. And he said, all of this is yours for your heart's delight. Eat, drink, and be merry, but don't touch that tree. And what is the one thing they wanted? They wanted the one thing that they didn't have. They wanted the one thing that, they, that was off limits. They said, he must be holding out on us. There's something better. There's something there. And the, the enemy used that, that desire within to completely derail everything. Y'all remember the lie he told her? He said, God, God, you won't, surely you won't die. God's holding out on you. He knew that Adam and Eve would want the one thing they don't have and that he could get them to fall for that lie. I believe that the enemy is still at it today. Constantly through the, 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 the shows that we watch or the shows that we stream on YouTube TV or whatever streaming device you use or social media especially, we're always looking and we see all the things that we don't have and that we want and we're willing to do whatever it takes to get those things. We're never satisfied. We live in this inex- inextinguishable discontentment. Again, this isn't a new problem. This problem has plagued humanity since the beginning of time. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The apostle Paul understood this inextinguishable discontent probably better than anyone. And Apostle Paul deals with this topic head on in Philippians 4 that we're going to be looking at today. In these verses that we're going to look at, Paul makes what I call a a, a lean-in statement. Y'all know what that is? That means when he says this, you should lean in, really listen, and then just grab hold of it and apply it to your life. I know the Lord has used these verses over the last couple weeks in my life just man, stepping all over my toes and and wrecking my world because uh, what we're gonna talk about today, this idea of contentment, while it may may sound easy, let me tell you something, it is hard. It's a lot more challenging and a lot harder than we think. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Philippians chapter four. We're gonna be in verse 10 through 13. As you make your way there, I wanna remind you something because again, this is, the fourth series we've done in Philippians since the spring, and it's been a while. We took a break, but now we're back in it. We're in the last chapter of the book of Philippians, and we often call it a book, but I think we miss the point a lot of times or when we just consider it to be a book. It's not a textbook. It's not a book on theology. It's not a religious book. It is a letter. It is a letter written by a spiritual father to his spiritual kids in Philippi. These were people that Paul loved and cared for. These were people that Paul had deep, meaningful relationships with. And so Paul is writing them a letter to encourage them, to rebuke them, to challenge them, to strengthen them along the way. 
All the way back in chapter one in verse 27, we, we made this statement in that series. Chapter one, verse 27, the apostle Paul gives us the main point, the main thesis of the entire rest of his letter. And he says this, he says, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then everything after that we said could be pointed, could point right back to that statement. The rest of his letter in Philippians, every time you hear Paul say something, it goes right back to that statement. Only let your manner of life be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. Another translation says it like this in the CSB translation. He says, just this one thing. Y'all remember that? I, did, I actually preached this sermon back in the spring. He said, this one thing that I want you to know, and it's this, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. Paul was speaking to Philippians that lived in a Roman empire, y'all remember? And he wanted them to understand, I know you live in Rome, but you don't belong to Rome anymore. You have a new citizenship. And citizens of heaven belong now to an eternal kingdom with an eternal and sovereign king. And so while you're here temporarily for a little while, you need to live different, act different. You need to not chase after the things that the world wants you to chase after. You need to know that your peace, your contentment, your satisfaction, your joy is not tied or linked to any of those things because you belong to heaven. And everything you see around you, everything you're striving for, everything that the world is telling you is important, it is all gonna pass away someday. That car that you desperately want and you've sacrificed your, most of your life to save up enough money to buy it, the moment you drive it off the lot, guess what? It's not new anymore. And it doesn't satisfy. Paul wants us to know as we jump into chapter four, that you are citizens of heaven. You belong to a new kingdom. And so therefore you should live and act like it. Amen? So if you're, if you're in chapter four in verse 10, let me hear you say the Bible is true. Here's what Paul says starting in verse 10. He says, for I rejoiced in the Lord, kind of. I'll make sure you're paying attention. I heard somebody right here, thank you. I, I rejoiced in the Lord, what? Greatly, because once again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. He says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and how many? All. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. I, I want you to underline that. Highlight that, underline that. That's the title of today's message, The Secret of Life. For Paul says, I have learned the secret the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Next verse, he says this, and I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Did you catch that as we read through those verses? Paul said, I've learned a thing or two. He said, hey, friends in Philippi, 
I've been around the block a time or two. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. And he says, let me tell you something. I've learned some lessons. I've learned a secret, he says. And he says, I want you to know this, this little secret that I've learned, it has the power to completely change your life if you'll grab a hold of it and if you will apply it to your life. And he says, it's this, it is the secret of what? Oh, y'all gotta wake up. Y'all gotta stay with me. It is the secret of contentment. Hey, those of you watching online, what is it? It is the secret of contentment. I heard them louder than I heard you. It is the secret of contentment, Paul says. Let me, let me, ask, let me read to you what contentment is, just in case there's any confusion in the room. Contentment is this. It is to be satisfied, satiated, at peace with my life, and settled. Doesn't that sound great? Who doesn't want this? Is there anyone in this room, is there anyone online that would say, no, nah, no thanks? Isn't that what we're all striving for? Isn't that what we all desire? That we could say, man, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm satiated. I, I'm at complete peace with my life. I'm, I'm settled. I don't need or, or want anything. I'm good. <clears throat> Have you ever met anyone like that? I have, I've met a couple people like that, it's rare. Here's what I mean. I don't mean the person that shows up on Sunday, puts on their Sunday best, walks in the door, and even though they're the furthest thing from good, even though they're anxious and fearful and stressed out and worried and screaming and fighting in the car on the way here and doing this to the kids in the back seat and arguing with the wife about finances and bills and their whole world is crumbling around them that walks in and when they walk in this place and you ask them, hey man, how are you? How are you, Wayne? Oh, I'm good, man, I'm good. I'm good. All is well. I'm not talking about that kind of good. I'm talking about the person that you can look at in the eye and even though everything is falling apart or whatever it may be, whatever's going on in their life, that from the depths of their soul, they can look at you and say, no, I really am good. I don't need anything. I've got peace. Don't you wanna be that kind of person? Don't you wanna live that kind of life? It's a rare thing in this world that we live in considering that we live in this inextinguishable discontentment, always searching, always longing, always chasing after more. It's rare to find that person that says, man, I'm good from the depths of my soul. I don't need anything. By the way, there's never been a more qualified person to write these words on contentment than the Apostle Paul. I mean, think about it for a moment. He's not writing these words from a penthouse suite. He's writing these words from a prison cell in Rome where he's chained to a Roman guard 24 seven. And at any moment they could walk in and be like, it's time. Your life's being demanded of you. And in the middle of that, in the middle of that prison cell, 
Paul is able to write these words to encourage his friends to be content. He says, I've learned something. I've learned a thing or two. So let's look at what Paul learned in the book of Philippians. The first one we see is this. Starting in verse 10, Paul says this. He says, contentment is bolstered by community. Contentment is bolstered bolstered by community. In verse 10, Paul says, for I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it, but now you did. Paul rejoiced, it says, in the Lord greatly because of the generosity of the Philippian church. These were Paul's people. These were his friends. These were those people that he did life with, that he loved and cared about deeply. And Paul's sitting in a prison cell, 800 plus miles away in Rome from Philippi, and he's probably wondering, have they forgotten me? He's probably experiencing some of the loneliest seasons in his life, wondering, does anyone know that I'm here? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you're sitting in a prison in your own house or in your own life wondering, does anyone see me? Does anyone know? Does anyone care? And Paul says, oh, I'm rejoicing now because I know you care. You care deeply for me. I received your love offering, your generous gift that you sent to me. I received it. And now what I want you to know is your, your generosity has strengthened and supported my contentment. Like I'm, I'm good. As long as I know that you're good, I'm good. That's what Paul said as he received this letter from his friends in Philippi in the middle of a a dark season in his life. Let me ask you this, New Beginnings. Do you have a group of people in your life that, that would send you a care package? Do you have anyone that you could call on during a dark season in your life? As Pastor Matt and Gilmer always says, who are your 3 a.m. people? Who's gonna pick up the phone and answer when you get up in the middle of the night, when the bottom falls out and everything feels like it's falling apart? Who do you know, who do you have that you can call on and you know that when you call, they're gonna answer and they're gonna care? Do you have anyone like this in your life? Paul did. Paul did, and he says, man, I, I rejoice greatly in the Lord because you cared for me. You sent this love offering, and I didn't need it. Like, I, I was good even before you sent it, but now, man, I'm really good. I'm just rejoicing. I'm celebrating in the middle of a dark prison cell because I know that I'm not forgotten. I know that I have people that love me and care for me. We need this type of community We were not meant to do life alone. So I don't know where you're at, what season of life you're in. I don't know what you're going through. You may be experiencing some mountaintop moments right now. But here's what I know is that doesn't last. They say you're either coming out of a storm, in the middle of a storm, or about to walk into a storm in life. And when you do, you need community around you. You need someone. When you get the diagnosis, 
that you can call on. That when you can't pick yourself up off the floor because of the chemo treatments, that they're gonna be there to pick you up off the floor. You need those friends that check on you when you're going through these seasons to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. You need those friends that knock on your door and they just leave a hot meal at the the front of the door for you. We need community. And Paul says, listen, contentment is bolstered and strengthened and supported by godly community. Paul goes on to say this about contentment. In verse 11 through 12, he wants us to know this. Contentment doesn't just happen. He says contentment is learned. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. For I know how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Paul wants us to know this. Contentment isn't something that just happens. It isn't natural. You're not born with it. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I'm gonna be, start being content. Don't you wish it was that easy? Like, don't you wish you could just wake up tomorrow and be like, starting tomorrow at 6 a.m. when I get up, from that day forward and every day after, I will be content. I will be settled and satisfied. I will not want or long for anything. I will be perfectly content. Don't you wish it was that easy, New Beginnings? Don't lie, we're in church now, don't lie. Don't you wish it was that easy, New Beginnings? Amen, like that would be incredible if I could look at my boys and say, hey, quit worrying about everything you don't have. Just be grateful, be satisfied with what you have, be content, and they would just happen. Wouldn't that be amazing, parents? Wouldn't that be amazing, wives, if your husband would just be content? Husbands, wouldn't it be amazing if your wives, you could say, hey, honey, just be content. We don't need to go shopping, we don't, we're good. And they would go, you're right, I'm good. Wouldn't that be amazing? Some of you know, you're smarter than that. You know better than answer that question in here. We all want to be content. Paul says it's, it's something he had to learn. He says, I, I, it's something I've learned. And Paul learned it in probably in two different ways. And these are still the same ways that we l- would learn this today. The first way Paul learned it was through the scriptures, through the word of God. He would open up his Bible and he would read the Old Testament scriptures. He would read passages like we see in Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19 that says this. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. Paul would have read that and gone, 
That's what contentment is. Even if the vines aren't producing any fruit, even if the fig tree is barren, even if there are no sheep in the stalls, I will rejoice in the Lord because the Lord is my salvation. Paul would have read those words and gone, that's what I'm supposed to live like. That's how I'm supposed to respond. Whether I'm in a season of plenty or a season of poverty, that's how I'm supposed to reply. What about this? He probably would have read Psalm 23. All of us know that Psalm by memory, I'm sure. The Lord is my what? I shall not. I'm sure Paul read that many a times. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's plenty. He leads me beside still waters. That's restoring and refreshing my soul. He says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And we need to do the same thing. If the Bible is true, and we say that every week, then we need to be in the word daily, reading the word, letting the word of God speak into our life more than social media. Oh, I stepped on a few toes there, didn't I? We need to be in the word, reading the word, letting the word of God get into us and change us and transform us and teach us what it looks like to live a life of contentment. Amen? And Paul did that. But Paul also learned contentment through another avenue. It's what I call the school of life. Any of y'all ever been to that school? You can raise your hands. Go ahead and get them up high and proud. Some of you have been through that school a few times. You got a PhD, right? It's called the school of hard knocks. You've experienced great victories and great sorrow and everything in between. Paul experienced and learned this thing called contentment through life. Listen what he says. He says, I've learned in whatever circumstances I'm in to be content. I threw him off back there, by the way. I have learned in how many circumstances? All circumstances. He says, I've learned in whatever circumstances I find myself in to be what? Content. Let me ask you this. Have you ever gone through some difficult or painful circumstances in life that taught you some life lessons? In other words, physically or spiritually, can you point at like a scar and go, man, that one hurt. But let me tell you what I learned through that. I, I, show, I joke with my boys a lot about certain scars on my knees or on my chin or here and there, and I'll tell them a story about, let me tell you how I got that one. I was doing this, I wasn't I just doing what boys do, and man, and I, I wiped out on my bike, and it left a mark. Let me tell you something, that one hurt. That one left a mark. And I always say, hey, stupid hurts. Don't be stupid. <laughs> Amen. Some of y'all know about those stupid scars that we have because we make stupid decisions and stupid choices. And they may not always be physical scars. They may be emotional and mental scars or spiritual scars. But they all hurt. And they all teach us lessons. Paul says, I've been through the school of hard knocks and the school of life and I've learned a thing or two. I've learned 
to be content. I mean, Paul, think about Paul's life. Paul experienced some of the most incredible moments that anyone could ask for. I mean, Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul, if you remember, in Acts, and he is um, hell-bent on destroying this movement called Christianity. And then on the road to Damascus one night, he comes face-to-face with the risen Savior. I would call that a pretty pinnacle moment, wouldn't you? He sees Jesus, and Jesus is so bright it blinds Paul. Paul falls to his knees, and he says, Lord, like, who is this? Who's talking? He says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Paul crawls and fumbles his way to find um, refuge in someone's house. Then the Lord speaks to a guy named Ananias, and Ananias says, Lord, are you sure you really want me to go there? Like, that dude Saul's a bad dude. And the Lord says, yes, I do. And here's what I want you to tell him. Put your hands on him and tell him he will, he will understand how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It says the scales fall from his eyes. Saul gets up, he eats, and he's baptized. He then preaches his very first message in Damascus. Now, I know you guys can be a tough crowd, but I've never preached a message here where I had to run from my life in, in fear that you're gonna kill me afterwards. Paul experiences this high and then immediately this rock bottom low because all of the men in the crowd were friends that Paul did life with. He had been raised with. He knew these guys. They, they hung out at each other's house. They watched the ball game. They, they were in each other's wedding. They did all of these things that guys do. And now he preaches the gospel and they go, let's kill him. And it says that Paul has to flee for his life and run from these people that he thought were his friends. He experienced the highest highs and the lowest lows. Paul experienced the, the, the prime steak in the palace of Lydia's house with a nice glass of grape juice to wash it down. And then he immediately found himself shipwrecked multiple times and abandoned and beaten and suffering and being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. He experienced more highs and more lows and everything in between, probably more than any other human on the face of the planet. So again, there's never been a person more qualified to write to us and to teach us about contentment. Listen to some of the things that Paul went through. It's found in 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 11. uh, Chapter 11, starting in verse 23, here's what Paul says. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. 
Paul goes on in Philippians 4, he says, I know how to make do with a little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, Paul's basically saying this, no matter where I find myself, I'm good. My peace does not come from my position or my possessions. Y'all catch that over here on this side of the room? Paul said, no matter where I find myself, my peace does not come from my position or my possessions. My peace is found in something far greater than that. He says, I'm, I'm content. I've learned to be content through all of those things, all the ups and downs, all the all around, everything in between. Life has taught me these things. I've learned it. And he wants us to learn it too. I, I can remember seeing this for the first time in my life. <clears throat> I was on a mission trip to Haiti. Up until that point, I don't think I'd been international I didn't understand what they were talking about when they said, no, this is, you've heard of third world country? They said, no, this is a fourth world country. And it's right in, we lived in Florida at the time. They said, it's right in our own backyard. It's only a two hour flight. Will you go? I said, man, I'd love to. It'd be incredible. So I went. And I remember getting, landing in Port-au-Prince, getting out of the airport, getting onto a van. And I remember uh, Tim Detellis, a friend of mine that runs new missions there, he, he looked at me and he said, hey, I need to, I need to try to prepare you for what you're going to see. Okay, what's the big deal? He goes, there are going to be things that it takes your brain days to process because you've never seen poverty like this. You're gonna have a hard time understanding it because you're just American and you live in comfort and you really don't lack or need anything most of these kids you're gonna see, they are utterly and totally dependent upon Jesus to provide their next meal or they may starve to death. This is what you're gonna see. <clears throat> Tim and his family have ran new missions in Haiti for the last 30 plus years. His father started it. They now have almost 30 schools and churches all over Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And uh, he said we would go into the different schools each day and um, we would take Christmas boxes, almost like Operation Christmas, y'all. We'd take Christmas boxes and hand deliver them to the kids in, in school. And you would see their eyes light up like they just won the lotto. Like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen, I've ever experienced. And I noticed the very first school we went in, a bunch of kindergartners. I learned this lesson through kindergartners. These kindergartners grab that shoebox that is sealed with tape, that is packed full of presents, more than they've ever gotten in their entire life. And then should have, like my kids and most kids, and if it was me when I was a kid, and even probably now, would, here's what we would do. Rip this thing open, right? Let me see the good stuff. Let me get to these things. Let me grab hold of this and shove it all in here and hoard it and keep it to myself. I was blown away when I had sat there and watched these kids take that Christmas box and do this. They didn't tear it open. 
They didn't hold it open. They didn't rip it open and try to take everything out. I said, Tim, what's wrong? Do they not like it? Do they not want it? He goes, oh no. Oh no. They want it. They're, ex- they're excited. They're just gonna wait and take it home so that their mom, dad, brothers, and sisters can all experience and be a part of opening it and then they can share it with them. I said, Tim, these are five-year-olds. He goes, I know. They live in such horrific conditions that when they receive such an amazing gift, such a blessing like this, like they want those that they love most around them to experience and, and share in that joy as well. When I read this letter, I think Paul is saying this to the Philippians. And I know the Roman Empire, I know the world is telling you to chase after all these things and to get as much as you can and keep it all to yourselves. He says, but we don't live that way. I want you to learn from me. Practice the things you've seen and heard and learn from me. We heard that last week. He says, and when you do, something supernatural will happen in your life. When you meet Jesus and you unwrap him and you receive him into your life, he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will move into your life and you will be content. You will realize that you've just been given the greatest treasure that man has ever known and nothing can touch it. It is yours. And that's what Paul wants us to see and that's what he wants his Philippian friends to see is that when you have Jesus, guess what? You have everything you need. You have more than enough in this life and the life to come. Contentment is this. It is learned that Jesus is enough. On my highest, most amazing days and on my lowest days, whether I'm in the palace or I'm in prison or anything in between, here's what I know. I got Jesus. And he is everlasting He says, never will I leave you nor abandon you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. And if I am with you, there is nothing that anyone can do to you. You are mine. And Paul says, I am content in all of this because I have Jesus. That's the last thing Paul wants us to know. The secret of contentment is found in Christ alone. In verse 13, he says this, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now let me just camp out here for a second and then we're gonna wrap this up. This is the most misquoted, misinterpreted scripture in the entire Bible. There have been more people to take this one verse out of context and apply it to whatever they've got going on in their life, whatever they want in their life. I need that promotion, God. Oh, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can get that job. I can get that promotion. I can get that pay raise. If I say this verse enough, maybe it'll happen. Paul says, that's not it at all. Paul says, I can do, here's a better translation for you. I can do all these things that I just mentioned through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content in any and every circumstance that this world throws my way because Christ 
strengthens me. He is my strength. He is my portion. He is all that I need. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, he who has Christ and all the world has no more than he who has Christ alone. Did you catch that? He who has Christ and all that the world offers has no more than he who has Christ alone. Let me ask you something, New Beginnings. I wanna ask you a question. I need your participation here. I want you to fill in a blank or write a word down on your notes. How would you fill in this blank? I will be happy when. I will be happy when. Do you have it? Is it I'll be happy when I finally get married? Is it I'll be happy when my kids are graduated and out of college? Is it I'll be happy when I get that promotion? Is it I'll be happy when I finally can retire? Is it I'll be happy when I'm wealthy and I have X amount of dollars in retirement? Is it I'll be happy when I finally have children? I don't know what you wrote down, but let me ask you this now. With that answer firmly in your mind and on that paper, what if that ship never comes in? I know this is hard, man, because this was difficult for me. I've wrestled with this for the last two weeks. Because it's, it's one thing to stand up here and talk about it, it's a whole other different ballgame to go out and live it. What am I looking for happiness in? What am I waiting for? What if that dream never comes true? What if that never happens in your life? Would you still have joy? Would you still be able to say, and I'm good, I'm good. I know I didn't get everything I wanted or thought I, that I thought I needed, but man, I got Jesus, so I'm good. He must know enough to know that I didn't really need that. I shared this with the eight o'clock hour, but something I've had to learn over the last 20 years of being a Christian my father-in-law used to say this all to me all the time. He'd say, Daniel, I know you don't like this and most people don't like it, but guess what? No is an answer. 
no is an answer. I know we don't like being told no. I know we want what we want. I know we think everybody should just give us what we want and make us happy. But he said, the sooner you can learn that no is an answer, you're good. You'll be good. The Apostle Paul learned that as well. There was a, there's a, he's writing in 2 Corinthians and he talks about um, that he had this thorn in the flesh, this thing that was just causing him a great deal of pain and suffering and anxiety and turmoil in his life. And he says, three times, three times I asked the Lord to take it from me, remove it from me. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, I am strong. Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly that Christ's strength may rest on me. That's how I wanna live. That's the life I long for. So let me ask you something as we pray and dismiss. Have you found the secret of contentment? From the depths of your soul, can you honestly answer and say, man, I'm good. I'm good. I've got all that I need because I have Jesus. If you can't answer that question honestly today, then don't walk out of this place without settling that business. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this team that has led us this morning in worship. God, thank you for all of my friends that are in this room and those watching online. God, I pray if there's anyone out there today under the sound of my voice that cannot answer that question from the depths of their soul, that they can say, yes, I have Jesus and Jesus is enough. Jesus is all that I need. I found the greatest treasure. Then let today be the day of their salvation. God, would your spirit move in their hearts, move in their minds? Would you give them the courage and the confidence to stand and walk forward and, and, and ask one of our pastors or ministers in the aisle to pray for them? All you've gotta do in this moment is just step out of your aisle, walk to that person standing near you and say, I need Jesus. And they would love to pray with you and celebrate with you that you found the secret today. For the rest of us, God, would you Help these to be more than words. Would you help us to grab hold of these words of truth and learn to live by them? We ask all this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus and all of God's people said.